thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Apocalypse is a Greek word meaning revelation or uncovering, an unveiling of things not previously known, and which could not be known apart from through that unveiling. Over the centuries, reports of an upcoming apocalypse have been greatly exaggerated, to adapt Mark Twain. In biblical times, it was usually an angel or another heavenly messenger who unveiled the revelation, and so it continued into the Middle Ages. These days, it's more likely to be a fresh-faced scientist, like Guillermo Rhine, speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. So every single year we have fires in Australia, in sub-Saharan Africa, Amazon, Mediterranean, California. But some years, as is happening more recently, the fires are much larger and much more damaging to people, property and environment. That is the trend, is what is concerning for scientists. We don't want to be waiting too long to start doing things differently. Australia in particular seems to be now in the need of doing something different. It's almost as if the ancient human fears expressed in the scriptures were intuitive predictions of the state of things described by modern scientific research and observation. With me to discuss and hopefully not enact the apocalypse are Dr. Freya Jeffcott of Queen's College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Massman from the Divinity Faculty here in Cambridge. Well, Alexander, I think we have to start with you. What does apocalypticism mean to you in the world of divinity? Apocalypticism is a really fascinating um, area of literature, which is pretty ambivalent. You would read in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Daniel, and the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and a couple of books that never made it into any biblical canon um, say that these scenarios about monsters or the four apocalyptic horse riders that bring famine, disease, and war. So um, you wonder, wow, this is horrific stuff. What's this about? Um, but interestingly, initially, it really functioned as resistance literature. So this is the take that um, historical and biblical scholars take. And the idea is, um, imagine you're faced with an oppressive regime, say, in the second century before our common era. Um, Israel was occupied by a Seleucid um, empire, the successors or some of the successors of Alexander the Great, who uh, imposed some really uh, strict totalitarian measures, really. 
And you wonder, wow, they're going from strength to strength. How is this ever going to end? Perhaps we might even empathize with that when we think of contemporary dubious rulers. And the basic point that apocalyptic literature makes is this is not going to go on forever. They're invoking the really big powers. And of course, it's it's a problem if we um, draw on that much later, because to some extent, they're imitating their opponents in, and they're reflecting, sometimes at least, uh, the same kind of violence. Um, so it's it's very much an ambiguous tradition, but very interesting. So in a way, it's the revenge of the oppressed, if you like, from ancient times. And Freya, would you say, what what do you think when you think of the term apocalypticism or apocalyptic? I think when I think of apocalypse, maybe just because of recent events, I have that vision of the red sun in Australia when we have bushfires. The air just becomes thick with ash and the sun is reduced to this sort of red dot. I remember it from my childhood too. And the visions recently of people having to take refuge on the beach with the flames behind them. Um, It's very much a sort of... I feel like I've seen photos of it, but not photos, paintings of it previously, like uh, Pliny the Younger sort of watching uh, the Bay of Naples as Vesuvius explodes, except for it's actually where I'm from. It's happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that sense of being present during an apocalyptic moment, um, when you were there as a child, uh, was it was it frightening? Was it uh, just it just happened? I mean, how did you feel at that time? I guess the scale was so much smaller when I was a child that it just was fascination, even when it was almost in our backyard. Whereas these days, even at this great distance, like Plimmy the Younger sat on that boat watching this all unfold, the sense of horror I hadn't really anticipated. You still have that sort of apocalyptic awe and that sort of fascination as things begin to, the animals begin to flee and all the rest. But that deep sense of horror I didn't anticipate outside of something far more personal and small. And did that stimulate you into the work that you personally do, that sense of awe and fascination and horror? I've realized recently that maybe what I consider myself is a sort of interpreter of texts in a way or some kind of trying to articulate signs. So recently I dug this up when looking at sort of uh, what precedes outbreaks and I was thinking of sort of longer ecological and political trends because these things don't actually happen that suddenly they're the sort of inevitable end of much longer um, obvious changes Uh, there was an account by someone I think you pronounce this alien so on the nature of animals so like 200 AD there is this account of this uh, community and they've somehow angered some god and all the animals begin to flee And they're absolutely struck by this wonder of all these martins and snakes going down the road. And it seems that it preceded a tsunami. I've got to say, as someone that works on emerging infectious diseases, we still seem to be fascinated with all these sorts of animals fleeing of these mass extinctions of this uh, destruction of the sort of natural habitat and these animals appearing in wet markets and such. But we seem to still be stuck in the fascination and not despite all the scientific evidence we have, be interpreting what this means for us and our future and its sustainability. Is it like being rabbits in, the, in, in headlights, isn't it? That sort of that fascination of it coming ahead and not able to do anything about it? I mean, the worrying thing is that we can, but it takes like this large mobilisation and we do have all this sort of scientific explanation and divination now of what this means. It's not just some strange, I don't know, almost uh, magical or godly phenomena. We know exactly where it's coming from and exactly where it's going. 
in the ancient writings, Alexander, is there that also that sense of, of fascination? I mean, do you think the, 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 the oppressors, the rulers, actually didn't mind apocalyptic literature because it allowed the people, the oppressed, to sort of vent their spleen without, be, without them being threatened? Is there something that is almost imaginary about the apocalyptic literature? And now, because we're seeing uh, signs of an apocalypse, um, they're coming together. Sometimes difficult to read what, how people really intended this sort of literature, or how they interpret it, depending on where they stood in society. There's a fascinating episode with a um, Jewish historian named Josephus who refers to one of those old oracles, perhaps the Book of Daniel, and he then says to the Roman Emperor Vespasian, "This is about you. You're the prophesied ruler here." Um, but somehow he um, smooths the edges quite a bit and then says to his readers, wink, wink, you can go back to the sources and read it. And the question is, well, either he was just opportunistic or perhaps he was trying to pass it off as innocuous and uh, um, pro-establishment. But really, this may have been a very veiled, hot critique of the current trends. Josephus had to be very careful, of course, because he was a, a turncoat, wasn't he? He wrote this book called uh, Antiquities, Jewish Antiquities, or, or, or The War, which is, of course, the war right. against Rome. And then when he saw the Jews losing to the Romans, uh, he kind of joined the other side. So he had to be very careful what he wrote, because everything would have been read very carefully. So was it really a hidden critique? Well, that, that is, that is the, the interpretation of one contemporary scholar. But with Josephus, you never know. Mm. So he writes about all the wonderful things that the Romans have done for him and um, sometimes really egregious ways in which he uh, um, acted cowardly and uh, in running over to the other side. Um, it's difficult to say. But um, on the other hand, um, if you take, um, for example, the Book of Revelation, the New Testament, um, that's probably one of the fiercest attacks on Rome in this entire literature, saying this is the slave trade that's blossoming here of uh, just terrible cynicism. Oftentimes the name Babylon is, a, uh, is used as a cipher for any uh, oppressive regime like Rome. So maybe this is where we are at a slight juncture because religions look forward to the, the, the eschaton, uh, this end time, and, and it will happen to us. We're, we're passive as humans because there will be divine intervention. But actually where we are is, as, as Freya's indicated, is we need to intervene, that we actually we, we can intervene. We have the ability and the, the knowledge and the resource to intervene. But maybe there's something psychologically that's pr- sort of stopping us from doing that. So I guess a two, point, two points on that front. Uh, one is I can see that what I see as these signs of a sort of apocalypse are being politicised in a way I wouldn't have anticipated in more maybe ignorant scientific perspective. I'm like, no, this is very real and not up for much dispute. But I can see that it is becoming a sort of tool of politics and for challenging certain kind of power orders. Uh, when it comes, though, to us being sort of passive to it and where that's stemming from, Some of it is actually conscious choices not to address the larger drivers, despite us being very clear on what they are. So for viral emergence, uh, these are things like population density and growth, mobilization, uh, deforestation, high density farming. Uh, We know all these things. But for instance, uh, Joshua Lederberg, this microbiologist Nobel laureate, Back when we realized that we were seeing the sort of new emerging infectious disease era, I think it was somewhat signaled by like HIV in the late 80s. 
I, he made this uh, proclamation, more or less, that uh, one line of social thought would be to argue that the only answer is a fundamental convergence on population and poverty, and then went ahead to sort of discard that and say, no, we need sort of technological surveillance-based uh, solutions. But the truth is, without actually addressing these underlying drivers of, say, disease emergence or these larger ones of climate change, a sort of more neoliberal world and what that means for trying to uh, even combat things like antimicrobial resistance, where we have to incentivize markets to tackle it despite the fallout. I, I mean, it's because we've sort of decided to turn away from that, from addressing these things. And I'm not entirely sure why we've decided that environment and poverty and such are so much beyond our reach. Yeah, an important question is how would um, religious groups in that location respond I think um, that's where probably the ambivalence of um, apocalypticism is rather unfortunate. So um, you can say, well, we're going to have it anyway. Let's not worry too much about this planet. Um, that's, not, of course, not the, the only thing that religious groups say. But on the other hand, um, you could also say, um, well... Our imagination is not limited to this one world, and we're bringing the creative resources of the religious imagination into our um, into shaping the conditions in which we live right here and now. So um, there are people like biologist E.O. Wilson, for example, who's trying to um, bring to the table religious groups who want to claim uh, caring for nature as part of their religious uh, um, heritage. And this could very well play in, into um, uh, trying to prevent those terrible uh, disease outbreaks and um, sensitizing people to uh, caring for the diversity in which they live, etc. Are these, are these religious groups that you're referring to, are they marginal groups or are they mainstream? I mean, are we, is it actually influencing what we're doing in the religious world and i realize the world's much wider than that but in terms of those who adhere to one religion or another are religious leaders actually influencing their behavior to do more to sustain this environment i think um the religious scene really depends and varies between different countries but very often it's it's just really uh, pluralistic and you'd see groups with the most um, different um, convictions out there. And interestingly, also, um, these religious uh, convictions don't necessarily stay in the realm that we recognize as religion, but um, oftentimes they uh, come in in a more secularized shape. So if people invoke the force of history or progress or the consciousness of the people, those kinds of things um, have been some sort of a... Um, secularized eschatology. Certainly, I mean, much in the news with uh, conservative groups in some parts of the world, you'd see more restrictive or escapist tendencies. Um, but we you shouldn't just cede the, uh, the playing field to that, because that's not, the reality isn't just as clear-cut as that. Well, teetering on the edge of that thought, let's take a break. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Freya Jeffcott and Alexander Massman. One of the problems we face today, which has apocalyptic potential, is self-inflicted, the profligate overuse of antibiotics. Here's Mark Holmes from the Department of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Cambridge. Well, the big problem is that 
Not that we use too much antibiotics on healthy animals, but we probably have too much endemic disease in farm animals. You and I will favour cheaper meat and the farmers and the agriculturalists are very good at developing husbandry systems that produce cheap meat. The downside is that these animals are relatively stressed, so they tend to have higher levels of endemic disease. There's another issue, and that is to keep the costs down, it's not feasible to treat individual animals. So if you get a pen of animals and you get one or two that develop diarrhoea, then the antibiotics tend to be given to the whole pen rather than to the individual animal. And that is probably something that is less than ideal from the point of view of generating antimicrobial resistance. Mark Holmes speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast about how medicine has become the victim of its own success. So Freya, where are we in terms of antibiotics? We're hearing quite a lot about the fact that antibiotics aren't having an impact anymore. Um, We've had this warning for quite a long time and it's coming true. We're in a very bad place. So I heard uh, Dame Sally Davis talk the other day. She's the former chief medical officer of the UK. And I, I mean, it was quite sad. She discussed how through her career as chief medical officer, how much of an uphill battle it was to even get this on the agenda. And yet this was very much the hill she was willing to sort of uh, die on for it. This was the big issue. I So I'm quite concerned that a lot of the focus here has been on ways to sort of stimulate private investment to try and get more potential new antibiotics uh, into the pipeline. But obviously, there's it's a massively complex problem. And when you do develop one, there's something of having to almost hide it, guard it, keep it safe, because as soon as it gets used, it is going to spread. Again, this comes back to my concern that, I mean, we can't win at this unless we actually try and tackle the much larger underlying drivers. So Claire Chandler, who is this phenomenal medical anthropologist at London School in Hygiene Tropical Medicine, she does these ethnographic studies of antimicrobial, but mostly antibiotic use, especially in low and middle income countries. And the misuse of antibiotics there in every one of these detailed, rich accounts that her group develops is that it comes from just the absence of basic things like soap and water and the appropriate antibiotic or an alternative treatment regime. I mean, I think the part of the problem outside of veterinary where Mark Holmes works is just that they were used as sort of patches for much larger infrastructure and sort of uh, almost class issues. Do you think the impact of the coronavirus has the potential to educate us all. I know in my family, just on a very personal level, that the the use of hygiene, the use of washing your hands with soap and water, uh, the lack of physical contact has not only taken place over the last few days, but I think will continue in the long term. And now, do you think that uh, the near apocalypse can actually um, uh, result in us moving further away from it? I, I really, I genuinely hope so. I mean, I hoped that with all the coverage that Ebola had got and the fact that Ebola is not Ebola outside of a place with extremely limited sort of resources like plumbing and soap, you can have imported Ebola cases that never take off in the same way you can have cholera ravage one country and be absolutely almost eradicated from Europe. But maybe as it's now in our houses, especially in wealthier countries, it might begin to set in the difference that soap and water makes in staving off the apocalypse, as simple and sad as that sounds. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning that as much as the current outbreak is quite jarring, I would see it almost, obviously, a terrible, terrible cost is going to 
come out of this, but a sort of warning for even larger sort of changes and outbreaks, and that we need to learn these lessons very quickly and not forget them in the coming decade. Yeah, and I think we shouldn't um, ourselves fall into some apocalyptic mood um, at this point. So, um, of course, the news always reminds us of the bad things that happen. Um, and so we often forget about the good things that happen. And I've, I've been reminded of a, an opinion piece that the New York Times um, journalist Nicholas Christoph wrote last December in which he said, if you're depressed by the state of the world, let me toss out an idea. In the long arc of human history, 2019 has been the best year ever. And you wonder, what? Really? Um, but he says, well, uh, rates of literacy are going down. Childhood mortality is um, going down. Uh, women's rights are probably going up on, on the larger global scale. Um, and those are underlying factors that could also aid in the um, fight against um, diseases that might spread Absolutely. Um, we know that things like education of women and obviously ed like education generally and such do make a big difference in terms of burdens of disease and uh, hopefully some of the other aspects. But I, as much as like I hate to be the sort of petty prophet of doom, I think we really have to acknowledge that the direction we're marching in. In Australia, our summers are now a month longer than they were at the start of the century and our winters are three weeks shorter. Oh, yeah. I, 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 yeah, so I'm a bit wary of people trying to sort of... To, to be pollyanna -ish. Yeah. And there is a danger of that, and, and, and I fall into that myself. Um, but looking at the context of Australia for a moment, um, is there a sense of learning from what's happening, or is it stasis? Is it sort of ground to a halt in terms of actually responding rather than wringing one's hands? It's so hard to separate what's happening amongst the sort of the politicians and the spokespeople and the populace itself and what might be changing at that level, because there seems to be very little progress in terms of the discourse in our politics. They seem to have changed from it doesn't exist to, oh, well, um, I guess we're just going to adjust then. Whereas I'm hoping maybe at a population level and maybe through the medium of elections, we can bring about people that are willing to tackle this. And maybe through the actual direct impact of this virus, which, as you say, is, is, is not limited to uh, the global south or Ebola was as terrible as it was, was remained on one's television screens. Uh, unless you were physically there. Um, but this is now part of us. There are fairly draconian measures being t taking place. And it may be that this is going to be something that does jar us to do something about it, and not just have the odd proclamation from uh, either from on, on high or from the standard bearers. And that's my hope. Now, I, I know, again, from anecdotal evidence that people are asking, what can I do? What can I practically do? Are there extra tasks that they can take on? Are there little things that they can actually do? Very much so. I think that maybe it helps if we sort of conceptualize this in two ways. The first is if you're under, say, 60 years of age, try and think in your head that potentially you're already infected and be mindful of everyone you're interacting with on the sense that you could pass it on to them. If you're over 60, I would say try and keep it in your head that you're not infected and be wary of everyone you're touching or sharing spaces with in case they are not in a sort of paranoid way, but in a that's maybe a useful way to modify the little choices that make up our day. Um, I find it quite useful when explaining this to have people think of everywhere they move as this massive sort of social network. You're a little sort of node and you've got all these ties to other people. And the denser those ties, like the more you're interacting, the closer, the more you're sharing objects, uh, the sort of thicker 
those edges, those lines between. Now, what we really want to do is the people who are particularly vulnerable, so the older people or perhaps people with underlying medical conditions, we want to try and make them have as few of those sort of physical ties with people and we want them to be as light as possible. So that just means in all the choices you make through a day from wiping a surface to washing your hands to standing too close to someone when you speak to them to these things, just for now, try and keep that in mind and sort of tone it down. Um, it, whilst the sort of physical distance that these kinds of outbreaks instills can be quite isolating, in working together in this way, you do get a sense of sort of solidarity and community. So there's a bit of an offset. So in a way, it's it's, uh, it's that interaction, whether it's on a, a virtual level or a, a non-physical level, uh, it's that support of one another. It's, it's not rocket science. It's basic human behavior, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's weirdly sort of boring how germ theory and pathogens work and the way that they spread through populations. But the thing is, it is our behaviors and our interactions that do lead to them spreading and will change the way an epidemic looks. So we are very much empowered in this situation as long as we keep an eye on it. And what about the world of literature, Alexander? What is there in your reading that can uh, help people think about what they can actually practically do? Well, I've been thinking about um, both uh, problems with uh, disease control and also climate change. And just in conversation, somebody else recently said, wow, sometimes you just feel like the ground is opening up underneath your feet. I've been reading a bit in the works of a um, Christian thinker whose martyrdom will commemorate in April, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who sat, sat in prison for implication in the assassination attempt on Hitler's life. Just a year before this was carried out, he said, let's take stock after 10 years. He was in prison under the Nazis, waiting to see if this assassination attempt will work. And he said, have there ever been people in history who in their time like us had so little ground under their feet, people to whom every possible alternative open to them appeared equally unbearable, senseless, and contrary to life. So, wow. Uh, first of all, in religious tradition, or those um, taking the long view of, of, at life, it can put your worries into perspective a little, but let's not um, increase our uh, despair <laughs> mutually, because Bonhoeffer then also says, again, waiting for this coup, and I mean, I might be a nervous wreck in that situation, but he writes, nevertheless, Without being dreamers, did those earlier generations await with calm and confidence the successful outcome of their endeavor. So um, we can make space in ourselves to both take in the full scope and extent of the situation in all its worrying dimensions and still think back to what makes us strong, what can we do, let's remain calm and uh, um, focus on the matter at hand. For Bonhoeffer, the question was, um, let's try to make sure another generation will be able to live a good life. Well, that's the, I mean, Bonhoeffer is, is a remarkable example, somebody who gave up his life for the greater, the greater good to, um, to assassinate Hitler. Um, and we look back on that. Um, 1944, was it? He was yeah. uh, executed. Uh, 45, yes. 45. 75 years. Um, yes, yes. 75 years ago. And... Um, Perhaps we can look forward, not 75 years, but end this podcast with us perhaps in 10 years' time, looking back on how we've learned from the last few years. Let's give it this, not a Pollyanna-ish view, but a, a sort of an optimistic view. So we're looking in, in 10 years' time at perhaps how this episode, this, this coronavirus, has actually impacted on our society 
for the better? What, what might we be doing? In 10 years time, um, that's taken us a bit further away from the, uh, the doomsday clock scenario, which I believe um, is, is down to 100 seconds. Let's, let's put it back to 17 minutes, which is what it was at the furthest point. What, what might that be? Well, if you look at, well, I looked at my Facebook feed this morning and I saw people putting up little signs at the post boxes of their neighbors. Hello, neighbors, do you need anything? Um, so maybe this will help us again rediscover the ties of personal solidarity in one's neighborhood. This is going to sound slightly negative on the surface, but I think a, a more visceral sense of how precarious our situation is and that we do have an ability to shape the outcomes of these things if we take collective action. I, I'm hopeful that this is going to set in and might actually give us a sort of direction or a framework to move forward on some of the larger challenges. That said, I, taking, I guess, from Camus and maybe the plague, even if we know that it might be hopeless or that ultimately mankind might come to an end, it is so important that we continue to sort of fight against this, like to be outraged by suffering and unnecessary, you know, disease and death and be oriented against that regardless of the outcome. So I think that some just set general sense of the fight. That it's always there, but it can be overcome. Well, that's it. The end. Thanks to my guests, Freya Jeffcott and Alexander Messman. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.